Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Jan Wong, journalist and author. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Jesse. Today on the show, when anti-racism training goes wrong. Really, really wrong. But first, Tinker, Taylor, Hoser, Spy. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Jan, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Robert DeFilippi, Joe Dickinson, Matthew Reichertz, Meg Anderson, Heather Farrell, Lyndon McNeil, Jessica Taylor, and Amanda. Hi, my name is Amanda and I'm a public servant from Toronto and I support Canada Land because I admire Jesse's passion in holding Canadian media to account and bringing me critical stories that I would never hear anywhere else. Archie Mann's been killing it on Commons and the recent season on Monopolies was excellent. Special shout out to the recent true crime episode with Michael Lista, which was haunting and thought provoking and kept me thinking about it for days afterwards. Keep up the great work, Canada Land. Very proud to be a supporter. Jen, big news on the foreign interference file. They've made an arrest. This this phantom menace of foreign interference 
finally has a name, and it's not a Chinese name. It's an individual named William Miker. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. A former Mountie. As a Mountie, William Miker worked in the shadows, infiltrating drug cartels. Over 20 plus years, I lived under a different identity. In online videos, he talks about his love of undercover work. My first project was simply buying heroin and coke. Uh, let's see if you can do street level stuff, see how you do. I then spent the next several years pretty much doing every criminal act you can do in a public market. I've laundered money through public uh, companies, through factoring. I've provided uh, loans. I provided physical cash to buy shells. And then we do the pump and dumps. I, I mean, targets have included lawyers. They've included judges. They've included CEOs. They've included, you know, drug dealers. It, it didn't matter. Terrorists. After leaving policing, he moved to Hong Kong and started a company to help the Chinese government recover financial assets. He's now been charged with spying and intimidating an individual on behalf of China. William Miker, international man of mystery, arrested in Vancouver, charged with conducting foreign interference for the Chinese state. Specifically, the police say that he contributed to the Chinese government's efforts to identify and intimidate somebody outside the scope of Canadian law. He's charged with preparatory acts for the benefit of a foreign entity and conspiracy. Exciting. Super exciting. <laughs> it's interesting to see like the CBC and Globe and Mail do this thing. And like you see him, he's kind of like got a bit of a silver fox thing going, 60 years old, not a bad looking dude. And the Globe and the CBC both publish explainers, you know, what we know about the retired RCMP officer charged with conducting foreign interference for China or CBC. Who is William Miker? I read those explainers. They don't even begin to explain what is known about this guy. Because I spent, Jan, I fell into a William Micro hole on the internet. This guy is fascinating. I don't know why they've left this stuff out. Have you been digging around at all about this guy? Well, when you told me you wanted to talk about this, I, I also spent a, a couple hours yesterday digging into it. And wow, I'm going, I can't believe nobody's done this. He's got this uh, background that is really, really unusual for an RCMP officer. Yes. <laughs> should we get into it or should we? Let's do let's it. Let's get into it. Yeah. yeah. So this is what I've been able to piece together. And it doesn't take much because, you know, there's tons of information that's either, you know, there's reported news information that's verified. There's some dodgy looking news sites that have stuff on him. And then there's stuff that I'm not going to repeat because I don't know if it's true. But like he has enemies who have posted full websites going against him with like, you know, complicated infographics. But there are court documents. That's the key. Yeah. There are lots of court documents. Yes. Canadian-born guy, born in Nova Scotia, but he moved around a lot because his dad was in the military. He starts off, goes into finance. He's a bond trader. Makes a lot of money, but finds it boring. And he's in his early 20s. He's just finished university, goes to London, England, and trades bonds. I mean, who does that? Yeah. None of the university students I know who graduate do that. How do you get to be a bond trader in the UK? Okay, so he makes a ton of money. Makes a ton of money, but it's boring and decides to join the Mounties and very quickly finds himself doing undercover work, buying like cocaine and heroin and posing as a junkie. But here's the, here's the really interesting thing. So he's got long hair, he's posing as a junkie, and at the same time, he runs for school trustee in Richmond, <laughs> BC. And the only reason he withdraws from... The school board is because they televise 
the meetings. And since he's running undercover operations, that's not a good thing. Yeah, you can't really be an undercover <laughs> cop and run for public office. Yeah. The Mounties are very pleased with his undercover work. And they say, listen, you know about finance. Will you go undercover in the commodities markets of Winnipeg? Because we think that there's uh, corruption among the people who are trading futures and options in the commodities markets of Winnipeg. That project never became public, but there's a reason why that project never became public. The bosses figured that I was probably going to do illicit or illegal acts with about 15% of the members of the exchange. Uh, I had a wire. I was wired up the entire time. We had wiretaps on the trading floor and a lot of the offices. The reality is um, if they had have charged one, they'd have to charge everybody. And I did illegal acts with about 85% of the members of that exchange. Oh my God. And, and the Mounties say, if we make arrests of one of these people, we're going to have to arrest them all. And this market's going to fail. This entire exchange is going to go down. And he describes it as a very Canadian solution. The Mounties say, well, we're not going to arrest anyone then. We'll just sort of quietly install some new regulation and oversight into this market and slowly transition away from corruption. That itself is like a season of a Canada land show. Like, like, like wow. Incredible stuff. So then... William Miker is asked to go and partner with the FBI. He's been so effective, and he's built this whole identity. And in this identity, they put him on a plane with a guy who works for Pablo Escobar. Okay? <laughs> I know. And he buddies up, up to Medellin's, like, guy, and he works his way into the Colombian drug cartel and becomes their legitimizer who's, like, they're laundering a bunch of money, they're buying a bunch of legitimate businesses. And as he describes it, he is the guy who does all of their legitimate business on behalf of the cartel. Yes, and this is documented in court proceedings. And the reason why it's documented in court proceedings, <laughs> and this is the CBC has, has uh, covered this, as did the Florida Bulldog, and for some reason the new coverage doesn't talk about this at all, is that one Vancouver money launderer who he put away for 15 years later tried to get the conviction Overturned. This was a guy who was laundering money for the Colombians. Right. A Vancouver lawyer named Martin Chambers. Correct. And let's talk about how Martin Chambers tried to over... Why? What was his basis for saying, hey, wait a minute, I didn't get a fair trial? <laughs> <laughs> Jan, why don't you tell me? What was his basis? Well, Martin Chambers is now in jail for a long, long time. I think in Arkansas. I don't quite understand why he ends up in Arkansas jail. But the reason he appealed is he found out that Maker was having an extramarital affair with the judge who ruled on Chambers' case. Key witness, undercover agent Bill Maker. <laughs> Mountie, the Mountie. <laughs> screwing the judge, allegedly. Oh, no, I, I'm not sure it's so alleged because, well, it hasn't been proven in court. But the husband of the judge also sued the Justice Department, saying all of this caused his marriage to collapse. I think it's uh, got a lot of documentation on it. And she admitted it. He denied it as well, so I'm leaving a little bit. Uh, Micah at one point denied it. So, But yeah, the judge's husband said it happened. He denied the timing of it. Ah. He did not deny <laughs> the affair. And, and... He also has said that to his knowledge... I'm the only person who has a legal opinion from the U.S. Department of Justice that, that I can have sex on the job. Oh, that I didn't see. That's good. 
<laughs> and the reason why we know so much about him beyond what's in the court documents is that after all of his work in law enforcement, he goes to work privately in Hong Kong as essentially a bounty hunter who's using his thorough knowledge and connections within both finance and law enforcement to track down corporate corruption perpetrators. But wait, but wait, we're missing all this other good stuff. Okay, what are we missing? Well, he's more than 10 years younger than the judge. I have to get that in. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't said exactly why he left the Mounties. This is really interesting. First of all, he comes back in 2004, after the Miami case where he's sleeping with the judge. He comes back and he's running the white collar crime unit in Vancouver. And a year later in 2005, he gets suspended with pay during an internal investigation. Nobody knows why, but what it seems to be the problem is that he was running for election (laughs) in Richmond as a federal conservative. (laughs) And he doesn't ask his bosses, is it okay if I, you know, do this on on the side? I'll just, you know, after work, I'll just go and run as a candidate. So they get a little annoyed with him. And that is, I think, the reason he ends up leaving the RCMP. He doesn't win, by the way. No. And And he goes to Hong Kong. Isn't that... Bizarre. Has a whole other life in Hong Kong, wife, kids, and like lucrative business, apparently living in a very posh neighborhood and doing work. If somebody has made off with a ton of money or you know defrauded a company, or I think that this is where we kind of get to his recent arrest. And this is something that I'm hoping you can give me some insight into. So his job, as I understand it, is companies or individuals will hire him and say, okay, we've had some, you know, white collar crime, corporate corruption, a fraud, or, you know, as has happened a lot. Chinese oligarchs, people who've made millions or billions trying to get their money away from Beijing, coming to Canada or elsewhere, money laundering. And so he would be sent to go and find them and find the money. And here's the thing. This is where he gets tripped up because China goes after people always as financial criminals because that's more acceptable than saying they're dissident. So for instance, the the great artist Ai Weiwei, who's had exhibits here in Canada and all over the world, he was charged with tax evasion by Beijing and they arrested him and blah, blah, blah. So what I'm saying is when Maker is given these assignments by China, it's a gray area. He's going after people. Yes, so many people are corrupt in China, but that's not the reason China wants to go after them. China's going after the the enemies of Xi Jinping. And so Maker is doing the work for Xi Jinping. And actually, at the Foreign Correspondence Club, I think he spoke in 2015 to them. And he, he started telling them that, you know, China has approached him and they're talking to him. And he goes, quote, nothing has come of it, of course. Uh-huh. But then he says... He understands what's going on. He says, when they zero in on individuals, it's because those individuals, so this is a quote, have been identified as potentially being a threat to the political or social stability of China. So he's aware of what he's doing. And then he starts sucking up to Xi Jinping, the head of the Communist Party in China. So I think he was using that speech to sort of let China know that he loves Xi Jinping, I'm here if you need to hire me. Right. And it seems a year later he founded his company and then a couple of years later he's now working for China. That helps, that helps. Because like my basic understanding of this is that Xi Jinping initially praised for, yeah, you got to bring these corrupt businessmen to, to justice and this Operation Fox Hunt of 
going after white collar crime, but it morphs into like the arrest numbers get up to like 10,000 and it morphs from an anti-corruption crackdown to a crusade against basically any threat to his power and, and, and to and to the state. So dissidents start to be the target yeah, it's of this. Political. It's political. And that's where our guy Miker gets into into trouble because it's one thing to be hired by a private company to go and track down some scofflaw executive. But the companies are not that far removed from the state. Some of these companies are state-owned companies. And at a certain point, and Canada is very lax on this, and, and as we're learning, we don't have any kind of registry for this stuff. So he kind of moves perhaps from doing like a private industry bounty hunter thing. And he was super public. Like we, we were hearing his voice and his kind of hoser accent, which I love the idea of a hoser James Bond. <laughs> and we're hearing it because he was like on podcasts and he was he had a speaker's agent. He, he like he was with a the bureau. There's videos of him talking about this stuff. Was your identity ever did it ever come close to being compromised? My identity only once I was working in another city and some guys that I knew from the Mounties just by pure happenstance because they went there to see a big football game. And, and I was in a sports bar with a target and they come in and, and, hey, Bill, what are you doing here? And my undercover name was, was Bill McDonald. My real name is Bill Miker. Bill's a very common first name, so it's easy to use yeah. just for that reason. McDonald, same initials, right? Bill Miker, BM. But he, I guess, veers into actually doing political work for the state as opposed to corporate work for companies. And now there's this question as to, this guy's very slick. And he even says in one of his interviews, uh, when it comes to money laundering, only stupid people get caught. And there's some speculation that he knew he was going to be arrested in Vancouver. And he was like, maybe, maybe, I don't know, we're going to find out. Like he's, maybe he wants to get it over with or deal with it. I don't know. I don't know why he would come back. Why, why come back to, to Canada if you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't it's know. It's not clear. And he's posted bail. He has to live in Vancouver. They took away his passport. So maybe he's stupid. Who knows? Maybe. Here's what I want to know. Why did we have to Google to find this out? This is the most interesting stuff I've, I've read in a Canadian news story. Like, you know, it's like if, if the coverage tried to make this boring, they could not have done a better job. Like, this is just right there in their lap is this fantastic story. And it's tied to the biggest news story in Canada right now, a story that I think has been lacking any kind of like, it's been this very amorphous story, this hazy story. And now we have this guy and, and they're not interested in the judge that he slept with. I'm interested. <laughs> you know, with the judge. So the judge and her husband have dinner with Maker and another Mountie. And guess what they give her as a present? A Mountie hat. Oh, are you kidding me? Are you allowed to give away Mountie hats? Because I wouldn't mind having one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we know what you have to do. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you know. <laughs> but... Okay, so that's a very legit question. Why is the coverage so boring, so dry, when you and I can just find this in a couple of hours? Like, it's, it's a goldmine of a story. So why? What are, they, what are they doing in the newsrooms? I don't know. And it's not as if it's disconnected. I mean, I, I'm interested in the links. We're learning that foreign interference has like been going on for decades, and it's a very complicated, multi-layered thing. Does this have anything to do with the political interference, which is the real focus of the Canadian news story? And, you know, Sam Cooper, who broke this most recent wave of foreign interference reporting, he has written on, on his uh, news site, the, the Bureau, that he was getting information from Bill Miker for his reporting. So there, there does oh. seem to be some connection here. Oh, I'm sure it's all connected. But so what, why? So I have a few theories. One is newsrooms have been decimated. People don't have time. But I don't buy that because 
if you and I can find out in no time without even leaving our laptops, then anybody can find this out. So is, is it that reporters are not into this kind of, they're not experienced about writing these really detailed profiles? Is it because editors are not interested? I, I think it's just laziness. Maybe. The, the lead's right itself. He gave her a Mountie. <laughs> he gave her a Mountie hat. I mean, it's just... I don't think it's laziness because if you read the stories in The Globe and CBC and elsewhere, they are drawing from the same sources that you and I found, the same podcasts that we listen to where all this stuff is covered. Like, they, they, they certainly came across the same information. So I have to believe that a decision was made Ah, the stuff that we ourselves reported here at the CBC about him allegedly sleeping with his judge, not really relevant. It's totally relevant. Of course because it is. Because it reveals his his modus operandi, why he's been so successful, what kind of a person he is. And it's just fun, you know. Sex in, in a story like this is really fun. And why would you not put it in? Because it's it's been documented 17 ways. She admitted to the FBI, and she said it was a mistake. He's admitted. He has not conceded on timing. He insists it was after. So there's no reason that I can see not to put it in a story. It's not like you have one dodgy source. You have all the main players. You tell me, Jen, you worked at the Globe and Mail for many years, and I have always had this sense that the self-seriousness with which that newspaper regards itself and the kind of austerity and like the, you know, this is the serious news for serious people leads to editorial choices that actively work against some of the things that people complain about, you know, oh, the press is too sensationalistic or tabloidy. I've often felt that the Globe corrects on the other side where they're sanitizing stories. I'm trying to imagine if I were there now and I they said profile this guy, which is which would happen. They would often ask me to profile somebody. And of course, I can't talk to the person because they're not answering, you know, phone calls or they're in jail. There's enough. I could write this. And where would where would they say I wouldn't be able to like I did something once. And I remember the only thing that my editor wouldn't let me put in was something called a golden shower, which I had never heard of before. And I put it in my story. So I didn't even know what a golden shower was. But apparently it's when somebody pees on somebody else and gets them excited sexually. You got that Ooh, right. Yeah. I'd rather take the Mountie hat. But, <laughs> but that was the line drawn. And that, and we're talking 20 years ago when everything was a lot tamer. Yeah, I mean, there was – later I think Leah McLaren got the axe for uh, – Fraudulently, she never actually. Yeah, the fraudulent breastfeeding. I love that it was fraudulent. The fact that it was inaccurate, where she lied and said that she had uh, mimed the breastfeeding of Michael Chong's baby. So, so if that can get in the paper, why is this not getting in the paper? Because it's a huge story, and it, the fact that even he was a bond trader is is fascinating. I didn't read that anywhere. That's how he knows his financial stuff. I just find it baffling that the media is not jumping on this story. You know, the New York Times has been reporting on a, a serial murderer in Long Island. And within a day, they had the most fascinating details. He's an architect. You know, he's hiding in plain sight. Within a day, they had the most interesting details of his life. And within like three days, they put an, a New York City columnist on it who happened to live in a condo where he had done some work. And all the details were there. It was just great. So I don't understand this. This is a golden gift 
to journalism. <laughs> and we're and they're writing the most boring, boring stories. Uh, and he's good looking too, on top of it. Come on. It's a it, one might describe it as a as a as a golden shower of engaging <laughs> content. A golden shower of wonderful details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. I want to duly note Cochrane Can. Have you seen the Barbie movie? Oh, you know, I was going to go last night to Oppenheimer and tonight I'm going to go to, but you know, they're sold out. I hate crowds. That's part of because I, I lived in China for so many years. I can't stand crowds, so I, I have to wait. So you saw Barbie? I have not seen it either, but our editor-in-chief, Karen Pugliese, has brought to my attention something that I think does need notation, that, that otherwise might go overlooked, and that is the cameo appearance of Cochrane Ken. Wait, wait, <laughs> yes. wait, what did you just say? Oh my God, what kind of a episode is this of Canada? Like? I just you do better... what my editor-in-chief tells me to, <laughs> and she is fascinated with the uh, the 30-year history of Cochrane Ken. Who is Cochrane Ken? Let's talk about him. Dan Savage, the sex columnist, 30 years ago revealed in his column that a new Ken doll, Earring Magic Ken, who wears a mesh purple shirt and has like slick... Two-tone hair, an earring, and a ring necklace <laughs> that what Barbie fans may not know, and the little girls playing with, with this Ken doll, with earring magic Ken might not know, is that anybody who knows anything about queer culture would immediately identify this as a cock ring. That the entire, this was a gay Ken doll who was wearing a cock ring necklace, which is what a lot of gay men had been wearing about two or three years prior to the release of cock ring Ken. 
Mattel at the time gave a quote to Dan Savage, we are not in the business of putting cock rings into the hands of little girls. What a quote. Amazing. <laughs> and cock ring Ken has since uh, gone on to take on legendary status. Having an original cock ring Ken in the box gets pride of place on any queer mantle. Uh, I don't know. It was a big deal, cock ring Ken. Wow. And apparently there is a, a little cameo at the end of Barbie in which all of the like weird ephemera from Barbie lore and history, all of the forgotten dolls and the really ill-advised dolls. Oh, I There's love There's also that. a sugar daddy Ken, by the way. A anyhow, Cochrane Ken is in the Barbie movie, and it was important to Karen that I let people know, don't leave Barbie until you see Cochrane Ken. This must be known. Duly noted. What would you like to duly note today, Jan? Well, mine is not as exciting. It's, in fact, super boring compared to what you just said. But, you know, the cabinet's being shuffled, and by the time this airs, we'll know more about who's in the, the cabinet. But I am interested in talking about Christia Freeland, because when I talk to people, everybody says, oh, she would make a really great prime minister. Everybody's waiting for Justin to leave. And I looked up yesterday how long he's been prime minister, and I think it's only eight years, but it's like the Humidex. It feels like 20, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so Christia Freeland, I've been noticing, and I used to work for her. This is why I'm interested in Christia Freeland. Oh, she was the managing right. editor of the Globe and Mail for a couple of years. So I, I actually know her. And so I've been watching her. And at the beginning, she was front and center. She was uh, fighting with the U.S. on our trade agreements. And during COVID, she was speaking out. And then suddenly, she kind of vanished. And, you know, journalists like to see not only what is there, but what is not there. And so I've been on the Where is Christia watch. Trudeau and Christia went to Ukraine on a surprise visit in June. And I was really watching the camera work, and she's almost invisible. And when she walks, she has to walk many paces behind him. I'm wondering what's going on. And I think, knowing Christia from the Globe and Mail days, she's extremely good at managing up, and she's extremely interested in the top job. So I think, I'm going to say that I think Trudeau thinks of her as a real threat. So he's keeping her, I think, the word is out that she's staying on as a uh, deputy prime minister. But this is what I found really interesting. You know, you know, Olivia Chow won as mayor of Toronto. Yay. And then she, Olivia has been going around trying to get money from the province and the feds. So the feds last week said no money. And guess who had to say that bad news? Guess who had to tell Toronto you're not getting any money? Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland. So Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's not an accident either. Trudeau makes her deliver the bad news. I think he's threatened by her. And I, I went to look at the ages, just like I looked at the ages of the judge and the Mountie. She's older than Trudeau. She's 55 next week, and Trudeau's 51. And that's awkward for her to ever become prime minister. So I just think that's that's my Christia watch. I think it's worth paying attention to how much she's being pushed to the sidelines in terms of photo ops. That is fascinating. And I, at first I'm like, where are you going with this? Because she's not <laughs> going to be affected by the shuffle. Mm -hmm. But I, I think there's something there in, like, is she being handed the shit jobs? And I think a lot of people for a while were like, yeah, Trudeau's time is up. His approvals are so low. He's so unpopular it's time to start transitioning Freeland in and setting her up. And, and for a while, it looked, like, it looked like she was being kind of 
you know, given a little mm-hmm. bit more attention. But I think he's since said he's not going anywhere. He's going to run yeah. again. And then you start to see headlines where she gets the the shit jobs of letting Toronto know. Like, she's my MP. Like, she, like, right. like for her to alienate Toronto does actually harm her, her viability. That was a tough assignment for her. And I think it was on purpose because she's too popular and he feels threatened. But she's so capable. You know, she's really capable and smart. So that's why she's staying in her position. But Anita Anand, for instance, is also very good. And I think she's also a threat. And so he's moving her out of uh, defense into some other role. So to me, he's the prime minister who said, you know, equality in my cabinet, more power to women. But he's now getting scared of strong women. That's what I think. Duly noted. Jen, we're going to talk about a really awful story that has become international news. So in 2021, a Toronto District School Board principal, technically he's retired, but he's back uh, working on contracts as a principal. His name was Richard Bilkzo. He attended a diversity training session run by something called the Kojo Institute. The facilitator of this session is a woman named Kike Ojo-Thompson. And according to a lawsuit that he later filed, what happened during the training session, there was a discussion, confrontation, I suppose, between this principal, Richard Bilkzo, and Kike Ojo-Thompson, in which he objected to something that she said. She said that Canada is uh, more racist than the U.S. or might have, might have more racism than, than the United States. Because Canada, she argued according to this account, never reckoned with its anti-Black history, and America has. Bilkzo disagreed, and he expressed his opinion that Canada is a more just society than the U.S. He had taught in Buffalo and said, you know, we also have a better education system and universal health care, and it would be an incredible disservice to our learners to suggest differently. And she is said to have replied that, you know, we're here to talk about anti-Black racism, but here you are in your whiteness telling me what's really going on for black people. She objected to that, that he would be the one to school her on this. And later at another session, she allegedly brought up his comments as a, a real life example of resistance in support of white supremacy. Then arguing with her about this was him showing resistance in support of white supremacy. I want to pause here just to say that this sounds like a conversation that two people can have. But it wasn't private. It was in a workshop. Yeah. And I think that's really relevant. I, I, I don't like either of their arguments, to tell you the truth. I feel like it's totally useless, this, this discussion of which country is worse <laughs> when it comes to race. You know, can, like the point, I believe, is that both countries are racist and that there is systemic racism in both countries. I think it's true that America— has had a more robust public conversation and reckoning about race. But of course, America also had industrialized slavery. So whatever, the the idea that there's some sort of competition, I feel, is of a a low-value conversation that keeps coming up, which country Mm -hmm. is worse. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's kind of shared on both sides. I don't know why an anti-racism facilitator would need to prove that Canada is worse than the states. I think it's, it's, it's quite easy to demonstrate that there is a problem here. And I don't know why Bilkzo would need to come to the defense and say, this is a disservice to say, like, you know, we have to stand up for Canada. If the point of this session is to actually talk about anti-racism, it's sort of like you're bringing in something that is sort of, Mm -hmm. right? But whatever, people can have discussions and debates and all of this in a different context. 
I think would be just fine. But yeah, it happened in a professional environment in this training session. And Bilkso later sued over this. And he also filed a complaint with the uh, workers' uh, insurance board, which he won. But he also was sick afterwards. It The stress was so hard on him, he went on um, a six-week medical leave. He said that he left the training session feeling humiliated, attacked, unsupported, harassed, and alone, and suffered mental distress as a result. He got involved with political advocacy, and this part is not getting talked about a lot, but he got involved with this group called FAIR. Jonathan Kay is involved. He was in touch with Jonathan Kay, and he got involved in advocacy. Uh, there's, there are some changes happening uh, in the school board here in uh, Ontario about getting rid of merit-based public education for like sports and, you know, gifted programs and arts programs and making it a lottery system. You know, it's kind of like adjacent culture war stuff. And that went right over my head. I saw that, but I didn't, I didn't realize the significance. You're right. The stories that I looked up about him didn't, didn't explain what this the significance of his activism in this uh, fair foundation against intolerance, which is unfortunate because it later becomes quite relevant, and that was omitted from some of the coverage too. And and also we're hearing so much about Kike Ojo Thompson, and her name is coming up so much in the coverage. But there was somebody else, you know, in, in terms of him describing the mental distress, and he felt like his reputation was systematically demolished. Well, there was also Cheryl Robinson Petrozini, who was one of his bosses, Toronto District School Board's executive superintendent, who tweeted after this confrontation between these two people. She publicly thanked Kike for this presentation and said, when faced with resistance to addressing anti-Black racism, we can't remain silent as it reinforces harm to Black students and families. So he felt like his boss was publicly saying- And she was- yeah, that she, that she was right, he was wrong, he was resistant to, you know, anti-racism. Right. And that he was somehow harming black students and families, and now his own boss. But it wasn't just that. They cut his work. After he formally retired, he came back as contract principal. They cut his work, and he he only had a few hours here and there. So it seemed, it seemed that he was facing some consequences for having this conversation yes. in this anti-racism training. And I don't mean to keep people in suspense. A lot of people know the sad conclusion to this story, but he he just took his own life. He died by suicide. And in a statement released by his family, well, what's being reported is half accurate. His lawyer put out a statement that his family approved of, which attributes his suicide saying he succumbed to the distress of this anti-racism training. It's true that, that there is a direct connection made in the statement from the family, that this was what caused him harm. And this is what he succumbed to. But the full statement released also talks about his uh, his advocacy. And it says these incidents led to his mental distress collectively, these mm-hmm. incidents. So by the family's own statement, that includes something to do with his advocacy leading to this. So the reason why this is important is that rather predictably, this anti-racism instructor, Kike Ojo Thompson, has become the target of international rebuke and condemnation and has shut down their social media. Somebody posted, she can't get away with this. This is an event that she's going to be at. Yeah, I saw. There was uh, an article from the National Post, Michael Higgins, school principal's death is a stain on the conscience of this nation. It's time to stand up against the woke zealots. She is being 
made like basically like there's blood on your hands. You killed him. Yeah, you know, suicide is uh, very uh, complex, and to point a finger and say you killed him is not right because you don't really know what all the factors are, and it's very sad when someone does that. But it's a mental illness, and many factors can be at play, and it's really almost immoral to simplify it and, and to say this is what caused it. It's ironic that the response from people who feel that she bullied him is to bully her. Oh, yes, that's a good point. I want to take a humanistic approach to this because I, I feel like it's being processed in the ugliest way possible. And the, I am seeing things that I find just as egregious from people kind of saying like, oh, white tears, this guy, like what, you know, he couldn't stand the truth. And like, you know, like a, a real dismissal of what I think is we have to, he said and his family is saying, no, this harmed him. Mm -hmm. This harmed him. And I take that seriously. I, I agree with you, Jan. This this was not just a conversation about racism. This was a professional environment. And I think, like, I think what's happened here is that after, you know, pandemic and Black Lives Matter rising to prominence and organizations reaching out for DEI training and anti-racism training, DEI, you better explain what DEI is. Diversity, equity, and inclusion training. So yeah. what, what happened, I think, is that there is a culture and a lexicon and a shared understanding of certain concepts that comes from, like, you know, academia, but also within anti-racist circles where, you know, when I first heard anti-racist advocates throwing around, when Desmond Cole first started to say white supremacy this, white supremacy that, what, what came up in my mind was, like, Klansmen, you know? <laughs> And yeah. th that that term is used very differently with people who are very involved in conversations about anti-racism that, you know, we're talking about a systemic problem that society, it's, it's not about pointing the finger at somebody with a, a swastika tattoo on their head, but white supremacy and white supremacists have a different connotation. I think that when a DEI instructor is like hired as like a hired gun to come in and share these ideas in a professional environment what they might not appreciate and are not being given the tools to appreciate is that this is not a safe space to have an open conversation with an older white guy yeah. who there, there might be a, a productive conversation to have with him about his unconscious bias, but he's in a professional environment where if other people perceive him as being resistant to this message, it could have huge career or reputational consequences on him. And it's not fair to put him in that position but it's not the facilitator's fault, you know? Okay, good point, good point. And I think a lot of the pain was caused by his Toronto school board being silent during the workshop. Yeah. And also tweeting this out afterwards, not supporting him, forcing him to go to the workers' compensation board to get his sick pay, uh, forcing him to sue. I mean, this is... The whole institution did not handle it correctly. Well, you know what you know of what you speak here, and, and I, I I would suggest that <laughs> what actually caused this guy mental distress, and I, I you know I, I don't it's mean to speculate. Betrayal. Well, it's like if if there was a facilitator who you had a, a confrontation with, whatever you feel like, whatever he felt about, she said the wrong thing or she was wrong, but he had a much larger relationship with this school board. Mm -hmm. It's the same for me when I got attacked by Quebec and racist attacks, and I asked the Globe and Mail to stand by me, and they threw me under the bus. It's that betrayal, which was, in my case, 
and I can't speak for Bilstro's case. In my case, that was so much more painful because you kind of expect as a journalist for people to attack you, you do not expect your own workplace to turn on you. And so I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I, I imagine that must be very painful for him and that he had to go through all these procedures to, to get and, and how his career dried up. I mean, a lot of people take retirement because it's the right time for pensions and stuff, but they fully intend to keep working. And then when this happened, they, they wouldn't bring him back anymore. So all of that pain is, is caused by the institution. This workshop was just a little part of it. Of course, I don't know. I wasn't there. I just read about it. But I, I've gone through a similar experience, and I'm I'm going to guess that it was much harder for him to be betrayed by the place where he had worked for, I think, 24 years. And, and you know what? There's a callousness with which people are disregarding that people actually really do care about their reputations that they've spent their lives building, you know? Yes. That there's a callousness to say, oh, this guy had all the privilege in the world and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? He, he, he did he might... have privilege, but he also is a human being. That's right. And he might actually have done great things and was a person of value who actually, and, and oh, by think all he reports, must have been. Yeah. was actually involved in a lot of anti-discriminatory uh, work as an educator. Yeah. And it, it, the, the institution, like, it, it, this is something that's happening again and again. There was a story from Thunder Bay, you know, and, and who is actually, we're saying a lot of sympathetic things about him. I feel just as sympathetic towards uh, the facilitator because... All of a sudden, all of these different institutions are super interested in anti-racism. Yeah. And they're hiring these people to come into these places. They're just writing the check so they can also now check the box. We've done that. So in Thunder Bay, they brought in similar facilitators to speak to a bunch of Thunder Bay cops about anti-racism who were just like <laughs> openly hostile and derisive and were like arguing. You know, it, like it just became a bit of a, of a fiasco, disruptive and dismissive behavior from the cops. That's actually a better outcome than what happened in this TDSB situation. So who is now public enemy number one to Fox News, the New York Post, there's British newspapers, all of them printing the name of Kike Ojo Thompson as ba basically the, the, the woman who is responsible for this. She is not responsible. Yeah. And yeah. she's she is, of course, going through hell right now. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, and, and what the other thing that this is being used for is like, oh, this is the death knell for DEI. Let's let now let's not do this work anymore. Let's get rid of this anti-racism. Yeah, that's the danger. Right. And that's what people who are against it are, are looking for. I mean, it's very important. I think in Canada, our conversation is not as robust about this as it has been in the States, which is why we're taking baby steps. And for people participating in these kind of workshops, it's, it's kind of new. And so they're not as, as, as used to it as they are in the States. And I am comparing the two countries now. I think their dialogue is more, you know, public and advanced in the U.S. than it is here. But these are baby steps, and I agree with you. She's she's getting attacked now, and it's the same. They're bullying her, and they're trying to say, oh, this whole thing is a waste of time and money, and look what happened. This man, this good person is gone now, is dead. It's, it's not like that. But I think the school board, the administration, and the institution have a lot to answer for. Well, they've now announced that they're, they're they're doing what they wouldn't do when he was still alive. They're investigating the workshop and... No, they should investigate themselves. That's correct. Her workshop is known. I'm sure she has a whole outline that she submits. No, they need to investigate themselves. Don't investigate her. That's why they're wrong. That is Shortcuts. Jan Wong, thank you for joining me. It's always 
really interesting to be on your show, Jesse. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. You can email me uh, about anything you heard today. Uh, I'm at jesse at canadaland.com and I read everything that you send. Isn't it called X? <laughs> I'm not going to call it X. I'm not either. How do you X something? Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter too and I'm at Writer Wong. Get it? Writer, writer Wong. Writer Wong. <laughs> this episode is produced by Katie Lohr with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Listen up. We want to know more about the people who listen to this show. We want to know more about you. And what I'm asking you to do is take a few minutes to fill out an audience survey. It's anonymous. It takes a few minutes to complete. It helps us make better podcasts and understand who listens to this stuff. Check the link in the show notes and you can quickly complete our survey. We would really appreciate it. Listen, folks, if you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get stuff, premium access to all of our shows, ad-free, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites, tickets to our live and virtual events. But here's the real reason to support us. You will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Just click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Come on and do it. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a campside media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.